everybody. Welcome to All Things Jiu-Jitsu. Our host, as always, the one and only Professor Papa John Gorman. Keep it down. And my name's Craig Anthony. Um, just your typical purple belt. Ready to have a little fun with you guys today. Okay, not so typical purple belt. <laughs> there is nothing typical about me whatsoever, I would like to think. So, uh, before we get started, of course, we want to give a big shout out to Dolomer Sports Services. If you're looking to get some home training services for jujitsu, judo, wrestling inside your home, you can get a hold of Dolomer Sports Services at dolomer.com. Right now, they are really specifically touching on home training. So, if you want to get yourself a 12 by 12 or any type of surface for inside your home, a room, your garage, set up your own home gym. Check out Dolomer Sports Surfaces at dolomer.com. And Papa John, you have a lot of experience with Dolomer Sports Surfaces. You want to elaborate a little bit with us? Well, Dolomer, there's just, <clears throat> excuse me, Dolomer, there's no question they're the best, I think, uh, mats uh, that you can get for rolling, for, especially for a school, jujitsu school, wrestling. They developed a mat that I like, a, a roll-up mat, and that I was somewhat in and out involved with, uh, with them on concerning uh, for military uh, combatives program that the Army has. Uh, we became very interested um, in their roll-up mats, super light. In fact, you may remember Matt Hughes advertising for a while, Grappling Magazine and these other periodicals <clears throat> that would put... Uh, show a guy lifting up the mats on his shoulder and walking around, to, uh, taking them where he needed. And you know, the old wrestling mat were so heavy. That takes six, seven people, still can't pick it up. You've got to roll it up on a dolly. It's a very difficult concept to move, extremely heavy. So Dolomer's really a revolution, uh, I think, in the whole concept of mats. Now other companies are following suit, doing some of the same product, but they developed a product for combatives that I like, and uh, I've been, uh, the roll-up mats, the different sizes they make, they even do one that's three inches, or two inches, I'm sorry, two inches thick. That's what I use in my academy. That's what we have here. And um, they are extremely safe mats, and they meet the Olympic Committee's guidelines for wrestling. So that's pretty good. But we'll come back. Dolomers, there's a lot to talk about with uh, Dolomer. Uh, and uh, they've been, in fact, uh, I set up a school inside the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And Gary uh, McDowell, who is the president uh, and CEO of uh, Dolomer, uh, he, was, he was there, uh, Johnny on the spot. He donated the mats for the Pentagon. Uh, and boy, that's a story in itself, what it takes to get a set of donated mats into the Pentagon. It took months, anyway, of work. Not on Dolomer's part. They were ready right away, but the bureaucracy at the uh, Pentagon. I'm sure. I'm sure. Anyway. Well, that's it. Uh, what, what we're going to, that's, uh, we'll come back to Dolomer periodically. Another one of our sponsors that we need to be talking about more and more is Rio de Janeiro Jiu-Jitsu Clubs. Because what it, some of the subject matter we cover, wow, is exactly the services that we offer occasionally. Now, this sounds like a commercial for us, <laughs> and I, I know it's uh, 
probably the wrong approach. We want a generic show here, all things jujitsu, but we'll touch on that and um, some of what Rio de Janeiro Jiu-Jitsu Clubs does for martial artists and people who want to operate a school and some of those services. But those are the two that we'll, you'll be seeing more of as we uh, go down the pike on this uh, on our program uh, and these, these podcasts. We're learning to do this, so be patient uh, with us. At least I am learning to do this. But I want to start something today, and that's basically uh, uh, I was uh, Craig gave me this morning uh, something he had printed out, uh, some news uh, uh, on uh, from, and the source was uh, BJJ World. <clears throat> so it's necessary that we attribute it, but it's really about law enforcement. So I want to read something, and then we're going to begin a discussion around it. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu saved my life. This is a common statement we hear and read almost daily. However, very often this statement is taken well out of line. While I suspect everyone's story and how BJJ has positively influenced it, the phrase is not just a metaphorical one. In fact, for some people, it is as literal as it gets. There are countless examples of why jujitsu for law enforcement should become something that offers and the officers simply have to do on a regular basis. Multiple testimonies of people that have embraced the gentle art privately show how useful it can be in situations on the job. Brazilian jiu-jitsu can literally save lives and law enforcement members have the right to use the best tools at their disposal. Grappling is considered by many to be the ultimate martial art. While there's so much martial art out there, grappling material arts, I'm sorry, grappling martial arts uh, certainly have an everyday application. As corny as it may sound, most fights really do end up on the ground. Take into account that the very reason jujitsu was created, at least the modern version that we discuss, uh, was for self-defense. And the case for that grows even stronger. Furthermore, the art doesn't have any particular strength requirements. It is also based on control with various options of turning the intensity up or down. Grappling can get people into shape while getting them ready to defend themselves and others. You can see why training jujitsu for law enforcement members seems like a good idea. Well, that is a great subject matter for us to discuss today. What do you think, Craig? I personally think that jujitsu is an imperative, necessary training element to law enforcement nationwide i think that all law enforcement from our sheriff's departments to our local police departments to our prison guards and jailers need to be trained and not just trained as we've seen in the past we see departments only putting their officers through a one-day seminar per year where they're getting a little bit of a niblet, a little bit tiny little thing. They're not training. 
And when they, I've heard too many officers say, oh, I'm trained in this. Well, are you trained or do you train? Because there's a huge difference in somebody that's done a <coughs> seminar and they can say, oh, I've trained with so-and-so. You, you may have trained with so-and-so, but that doesn't mean you train with them. We need our officers training weekly, daily. I personally believe that 20 to 25% of an officer's time on duty should be spent training, be it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or de-escalation tactics, but it should be a constant, everyday, all the time type situation. Well, I think that 25, it would be wonderful if that was possible, but that'll never be achieved. That'll never be possible. Financially, it's not possible Correct. for the community to support paying an officer to be trained that much. You can never get enough training. That's true. Uh, and you know from just doing jujitsu for the years you've been doing jujitsu, it takes time to learn anything. It takes uh, so much time to develop muscle memory. Is it, oh, yeah. well, now the yeah. volume changes because we're going to get excited, <laughs> but it does take time. It, the muscle memory is not something that happens. It reminds me when I first went in the Army. Today we have a great uh, Army combatives program. The Marine Corps, you were in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps has a combatives program. And it's pretty effective if you go all the way through it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in the Army, what we learned, uh, the way it used to be for combatives, you learned them in basic training. You learned combatives. Uh, and combatives was the old line style of combatives. And step back, and keep doing that back and forth. There was very little practicality. It evolved into, I think, their graduate level of that was when they gave you two sticks with some cushions on the end of it called bugle sticks and had you slug it out with each other. Well, that's not exactly um, learning or training uh, over the long haul because you leave that field and it's over. You have very little retention, very little you've learned in the long run. And uh, to, <clears throat> it was the same way with bayonet practice. You do it and, oh, I'm qualified. I've been on a bayonet course. It's a skill. Everything is a skill and you have to learn it. So military doesn't get enough training or didn't used to. They're getting more now. Um, same way, but law enforcement officers, after they leave an academy, they, get, they are constantly getting little snippets of training. It's usually what the latest law is that they have to adhere to uh, that ties their hands often even more. So training for skill, muscle memory, you don't see a lot of that. I think, I think we need to also look at the fact that um, in what we see in today's culture, when uh, martial artists such as ourselves that have nothing but good intent, when we talk in social media or we talk to people and we say, look, officers need to be training jujitsu, judo, kickboxing, martial arts and stuff. This is not, for me, it's not a mentality of trying to tell people, hey, we're trying to make a, a, a soldier, a killer out of this person. It's not necessarily for being offensive but is more for also being defensive. We can talk about situations uh, in West Virginia. There was an uh, there's an officer named Christian uh, Kristen Richmond who, in 2018, there was a good article that was written about her who was attacked 
by a suspect. Uh, she's not a very large woman, but she was had been training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She was a three-stripe white belt. She also trained some Krav Maga, and she accredits her surviving this attack with her training. And it's she goes above and beyond, and we are noticing a lot more officers that are stepping out of just the regular training, and they will go sign up with an academy. And there are academies nationwide that you can look into, and a lot of them do offer free training for law enforcement. And it'd be who of these officers to take that initiative and, and go above and beyond to take this, these courses. As you said earlier, Papa John, money, money for training. And, and when it comes to any, we, we don't live in a massive town ourselves. We live in Jacksonville, Arkansas, 30,000 people. We can pretty much look at a budget for, an, for a department that size and say there's no way that they're going to shovel, say, a million dollars a year to train all 80 officers continually. That's just not feasible in most departments. Um, so it is, it, is, it is a smart idea for officers to There's also, forward. there are other considerations for that too. Then they have to look at state laws that are applicable, that ha they ha their training has to meet. You have to, if you're going to deviate from that in any way or enhance a skill, you have to go sometimes and propose new laws and guidelines and prove the uh, ability of that new concept. And so it's just, it's a lot more complicated. Uh, we've made life very complicated in this country, no question. But your point about the girls, we'll take it. That uh, she was an officer, right? Well, one of the, I've got an example, and I can't remember who it was. <clears throat> I was in Tulsa with someone. We were doing a seminar. And only two things were taught. We had a couple of girls in there. Only two things were taught, and one was a, working from the guard position. And a guard position is where you have your legs around your opponent anyway. This audience knows that. But uh, so it was new to the girl, though, the guard position. And, uh, and while there, a choke was demonstrated. How to use a T-shirt, actually, to get a choke. And I do that. It's one of the first things I try to teach people. And it's very effective. And that's all she got out of, out of our course. She had to run, had to leave. And we're inside still going on with uh, rolling, whatever part we were at in the, in the seminar. <clears throat> and she got attacked. And she was attacked and getting into her car. The, the uh, perpetrator in this case uh, got between her legs and had certain uh, goals he was attempting. And... Uh, so she had just been put in that position and shown how to do a very effective choke. And in this particular case, it was amazing. She remembered it perfectly. And she went up, grabbed both sides of that T-shirt and tweaked her hands just right in the position you have to do to do this and began to choke him. He didn't, you don't feel it. He wouldn't feel it. She's got little hands. It wasn't a big deal. He just, I'm sure, just laughed it off. It wasn't even a concern. And yet, a few seconds later, he passes out on top of her. She, of course, is upset. He's passed out. She held, uh, held it a few seconds. Uh, she comes in, gets us. We go outside. And I think the rest of that story is not necessary to tell, <laughs> but the, uh, it was extremely effective. And uh, so I, I think it's a vital part of self-defense. And 
certainly for law enforcement officers. And involves, by the way, uh, we, we don't talk a lot these days about wrist locks and things like that in jujitsu. It is part of jujitsu, and we need to incorporate more of it. But certainly, the very least that law enforcement officers can do is be conversant and skilled in multiple wrist locks. There's a plethora of them that give them all kinds of protections when they go to control uh, someone. We get a lot right now with some of the stories that are coming out. Uh, you, I hear all the time, why didn't those two officers, three officers, four officers, why did they end up having to go to a taser? There's three officers there. Why couldn't they just control the guy? Why couldn't they control the guy? And we have to get really into the, the actual physics of things and, and the mentality and realize you could be dealing with a suspect that's on drugs that is literally almost impossible pcp makes somebody i'm a six foot 250 pound man if i were to be high on pcp it'd be extremely difficult for multiple officers now you get the typical person who they're they're trying to be detained they don't want to go back to prison they're going to fight it's not as easy as society tries to make it out to be there's a good video that I've watched online of Brian T. City Ortega from the UFC who was doing <clears throat> seminars with Henner and Hedon Gracie because they go nationwide and they talk to police departments everywhere. And T. City is handcuffed behind his back and he's in on the mat and he they tell these two officers that are training, restrain him. Get him completely restrained. And this is two good, strong physical officers and they couldn't restrain him and he was already handcuffed. We have to sit back and think that it is not uh, one plus one doesn't always equal two. If you think, oh, well, he's a cop and he should be able to do this to this. Doesn't work that way. Physics, uh, like I said, all types of things come into play. There was an officer about three years ago in Chicago, and there's a good video of her being attacked by a rather large man, and he's beating on her. She was afraid to pull her firearm and shoot because she was afraid of going to prison for murdering somebody when she was defending herself. So she literally took a beating and damn near got killed by a suspect until somebody arrived to help her because she didn't have any skills. She didn't have any way to do this. Well, the point you made staying on that is uh, subduing uh, someone that is necessary to be subdued and controlled. That's what jujitsu is all about. Yes. And that's what, as the article that we were referring to earlier on, I think uh, also, states it reigns supreme there that is the strength um one of the things i teach us in when we were just rolling for fun is learning to just control the opponent on the ground and resting while you got total control being able to rest subdue your opponent in a way that he can't really do anything or continue the action but there, there are skills in even doing that you have to learn it you have to practice it. It's well and good. The public, though, sits on the outside. You, made a, you alluded to something else. They sit on the outside and say, well, they should be trained for this. Okay. If they go and look at a curriculum, it's packed with all the things they have to learn. And there's very little time to learn any of, of, uh, of this skill at all. This is something that takes time over a, a long period of time to develop. Uh, because it involves muscle memory. Muscle memory is not 
uh, something that just jumps up at you as soon as you've seen it or seen a, seen a picture, seen a video, or something, seen some cool demonstration. And the best example of that for everybody sitting at home or who wants to criticize and say you, you should know this from just some kind of quick training uh, is the idea of a baby. A baby has to learn to walk. In a fight, you have to learn to move a certain way. You have to learn how to, how, how to understand what the opponent is doing and move. This takes time. Give you an example for the baby. A baby takes a step, first step. You watch a baby stand up first. It's all shaky, can't hardly move. Well, there's neurons that connect to the muscles and do the communication back and forth to the brain that has to be taught. It has to teach the baby, those muscles, how to move. And eventually that uh, takes hold. You see a baby then be able to stand, a little shaky, but then suddenly be able to stand after a little bit of practice, very comfortably stand. Same way with that first step. Take that first step, and they're shaking, maybe fall over, stand them up, they stand on it again, take a step, maybe, and after a few times of this, suddenly they can take that step, and then the second step. And eventually, they're running all over the fucking house. <laughs> so... One of the controversial things that we've talked that has been mentioned multiple times in really the past 10 years, and it is one of the most effective techniques in jujitsu, especially when we're trying to subdue, uh, subdue a suspect. And we have heard uh, fatalities happening because it's been done incorrectly. And it's the controversial rear naked choke. Rear naked choke. So I learned the rear naked choke one way originally. And then I learned it a different way through you. It, it had changed. I think my way I learned through you was one safer, two more effective. Um, to, uh, while we're on camera, I can say that uh, officially the original, what a lot of people probably came up with was the old, you know, grabbing the bicep behind and, and really pushing the back of the head and squeezing in uh, and, if you're not positioned correctly, uh, you could be putting that forearm on the trachea, not really lining things up very well, uh, causing a lot of problems to the cervical spine um, and a lot of issues. So uh, in, a, in a street fight, I could, you could say, oh, yes, that could be effective in a street fight. Uh, however, when you're training with your partners, you don't want to injure your partners. And, of course, if we're talking law enforcement, as we are right now, you you're don't protecting wanna, citizens. You're protecting citizens. So now I'm going to let you take over, though, and really discuss why we why it is so very very important that one how it is effective but two is safely how it, uh, why it is safer when taught correctly well this this discussion is is an ongoing discussion that's uh, obviously not going to be solved by us today but it goes back a long way uh, the person that we give the most credit to for establishing jujitsu the guy who went from the united states to, uh, from Japan to the United States, then ultimately to Brazil, uh, Mitsuyo Maeda. He's the one that gave Carlos Gracie uh, his black belt that started the Gracie uh, enterprise. Well, he had to actually go into court in Cuba to explain to a judge and demonstrate why it is the safest way to control someone 
and to subdue them and to, uh, that it's totally safe if it's done properly. And that means even after they're put out, if they're completely subdued and put out, they're only out for a few seconds unless you have not applied it properly. And by that, you hold it for three, two, three minutes, four minutes, then you're going to have a lot of problems as a result of that. But holding it for a few seconds, it's, it's six seconds, ten seconds, you're going to be, they're going to be fine. So are you. They're going to recover almost instantly. But the, uh, the interesting thing is that the judge, I believe, I'm going to have to research that. I think it was done to support a law enforcement uh, situation in Cuba. And so it's been being discussed. That was the early 1900s. Just think about that. Or in 1910, somewhere around there. If you uh, take it to where we're at today, the, remember the New York incident, uh, the big fella that was, uh, they said that he died of, they keep referring to the media does as a chokehold. They didn't have a chokehold in it. They had a headlock on him, and it was just to control him to move him down. After he was on the ground, they didn't apply that anymore. You have to look at that. That was totally wrong, the way the description and the way the media jumped on it. There, that creates a whole lot of misinformation, and people jump on that. And that's why city councils and people say, oh, no chokeholds for us. No, 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 we're not, we got to do this a different way. Well, they don't understand what they're talking about. And because of that, they are putting their employees at risk. They are putting the public at risk. Uh, you pointed out the necessity of training. This particular uh, skill set doesn't really require an awful lot of training. It requires learning how to do it properly, how to apply it from where you can apply it, then applying it judicious, judiciously. <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. Big words today. Yeah, I don't know what's Big wrong words. with me. It's, uh, I didn't. It's, uh, uh, anyway, but. More uh, coffee for Papa John. <laughs> I'll take it. There is, uh, though, the whole concept of, of uh, applying it, using it, and, and just not letting, um, not letting it become the whole thing. Uh, I guess everything, the end all to, to the process. But it's the easiest way to control somebody. It's the safest way to control somebody. And you've never seen any, you've seen it done a hundred, no, you've seen it done a thousand times in the UFC. And you will see those guys get up a few seconds later. Well, I think we also need to realize too that when we're talking about a rear naked choke and we're talking about uh, what has happened, what kills people and look and it's not necessarily the time when you we can t i can tell you right now that half the time an officer in the heat of the moment throws an arm around they've got the blade of their forearm in the throat of the suspect they're crushing down in and they're holding it tight what are they doing well you know what they say uh what will there's a big misconception too and i want to just tweak that a little bit uh, you're right. You don't want to do damage to the trachea, although in a fight and a control, you, you, uh, things can get kind of scary and hairy, so you do anything to win the fight or to, to come out on top. <clears throat> but you will hear people, it's a common expression to say, well, you're shutting off his blood. That's why he died. Or he's shutting off his blood. Air. That's why he can't, yeah, he, the oxygen can't get to his lungs. 
that is a total, total misunderstanding of the physical process. To this day, you will have black belts tell people, this is a blood choke. It's not a blood choke. What you're doing is applying pressure on the two carotid arteries on both sides of your neck. You're doing one with the bicep and, and the other with the full, part of the forearm. And as you're applying that pressure, it's putting this pr certain amount of pressure and that uh, there's nerves associated with each one of those. It is the nerve that instantly shuts, sends a message to the brain, shut down. Has nothing to do with oxygen deprivation. Correct. Has zero to do with, well, if, and this is a gross thing to say, but if you cut someone's head off, they're still alive for a few seconds. The head's blood looking, pumping the head, well, it was, and you got blood still flushed in there, and you got eyes flickering, you got, I mean, now that's not something that, um, there's a great deal of research available on, but there are, there is research on it. The French guillotine, there were people who studied people who were guillotined. And the point I'm trying to make is that it takes two, uh, well, seven minutes to really kill somebody by de being deprived of oxygen. Now you'll have brain damage occurring with less time than that. But you have to consider that uh, 10, 15 seconds is not going to do any damage uh, because it doesn't stop oxygen doesn't stop blood because putting pressure on that nerve hasn't cut that nerve off. It might slow down the blood, but you're getting blood from other sources to the brain too. So anyway, big misconception, and, and, uh, but it's a standard one, and it's an easy explanation that people like to take uh, of the rear naked choke. It's a blood choke. Okay, well, that's, um, listen, I don't know how we on time. Uh, do we have an idea how much time we have left or we want to? Well, we're at 30 back? minutes, but we're still good. We still got another really good, okay, we're going to change from that hardcore serious topic to something a lot more fun that we want to talk about that's kind of all over the jiu-jitsu world right now, and that's this really, really great conversation. Uh, the challenge, the challenge that has been laid forth oh. by the king himself as he self-dubbed, I believe, the king, Gordon Ryan. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Offers the challenge, for to those who Andre, don't know. To Andre Galval, a million dollars if, uh, if uh, Galval will fight him in a submission battle only with no time limit. And I believe that uh, the challenge is, I think he's even said to Galval, the reason is because you have no submissions. That's one of the greatest <laughs> jujitsu players of all time, and he's saying that. So, uh, I'm I'm convinced right now that if we um, watch this battle take place, Gordon Ryan may well be a better grappler and capable of submitting Andre Galal. He has perfected a lot of skill over the last few years and become one of the reigning stars uh, of professional jiu-jitsu, uh, these matches where they're paid big dollars. Well, for him to put up a challenge, Andre Galval, to a million dollars, and Galval only has to put up half a million, uh, I think that's a... Uh, I know Andre Galval. Uh, I've known him in the past. And I don't see how he can avoid uh, a challenge like that uh, based on his skill, based on his competitive nature, and what I've seen him do 
in Brazil years ago. Uh, I would watch him uh, fighting in the stadiums there in uh, Bahá Tennis Club. But should that happen, that is a fight I definitely would like to watch. It'll be slow. It's a slow fight, but these uh, with a very quick submission at some point. It'd be interesting, but I think this has gone professional jiu-jitsu now. It's where we're going with this. It is getting a little out of hand financially, but it's going to have the same effect, I think, of paying ball players when they started making, oh, $100,000. What? You're going to pay him $100,000? I'm only making $25,000. Many, many years ago. You can see how old I am now when I'm talking. <laughs> but now, and that's, of course, gone to the point where now a baseball player or a football player it's not unusual to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars when you can do your deal. And you see that beginning as the groundswell for this type of fighting has evolved and grown. They've looked for uh, a professional outlet. They've tried all kinds of them. And I think this approach is going to end up uh, being, say, Ryan's contribution to, uh, to that growth it's going to raise the price of jujitsu, uh, professional jujitsu, anyway. I think you're 100% right. I also think that Ryan, uh, that Gordon Ryan is the marketable face. Yeah. I think he's the marketable figure uh, that ju- the jujitsu world really, really needs to bring it to that next level. We see guys like Ryan Hall that stepped into the UFC and it's fighting guys and it's fantastic, but to still focus on we're always going to have these fighters even marcus buchecha has now stepped over into the mma world we're going to have guys going that route it's just a natural progression we've seen jacare do it we've seen a lot of guys do it however in focusing on jujitsu itself we are it is what we're we're watching this massive progression and only in the 11 years that i've been doing jujitsu the scene is just exploding and it's it is. great. It's exploding in a lot of different areas all of a sudden, professionally in a lot of different areas. You have the different types of tournaments now that are beginning to sustain themselves uh, for that type of competition at a higher level, at a higher cost. Then you have the evolution of MMA, where it's gone. It has gone in so, so far now. There's so many, there were a lot of smaller venues, smaller companies that got on board uh, as soon as it started with the success of uh, the UFC. UFC, of course, being the granddaddy of it all. You have other shows, smaller shows that are uh, enjoying the normal ebb and flow of, uh, of a free marketplace. They, they collapse on themselves or they grow and thrive. And uh, what's happening now, though, there seems to be a baseline that's forming. You've got more MMA shows going on, and you've got a diversity within each one of them that's developing. Best example is Dana White, Dana White's uh, Contender Series. That evolved for over three years. And that's an interesting thing, too, because I was told, I was in the UFC offices uh, about two years ago, and uh, I was there for a meeting. I had some people from another country there and we were talking about another uh, potential uh, deal with the UFC. And during the discussion, the uh, CFO for the UFC and the COO mentioned that that show was costing between 450000 the show that was called Tough, uh, The Ultimate Fighter. Ultimate Fighter. Yeah, where they followed the 
fighters in the house and yep. did all that reality uh, TV stuff. Well, that show was cost them between $450,000 and $750,000 to do and was becoming, and as you know, yes, a lot of money in the UFC, but the UFC for years was up and down on its finances, clawing from week to week sometimes um, to stay afloat. <clears throat> well, that became very popular, and I didn't like the idea that they might do away with it. But during that discussion, uh, when, well, when we were in that office, I, that stuck with me how expensive that was. And at the same time, that summer, they had started Dana White's Contender Series. And they said they're looking to see if that could be a substitute for that show because they're finding they can produce that show for less than $100,000. And uh, that was, uh, as I've watched it, I liked it. It became a lot quicker. All the nonsense, the buildup over weeks and weeks and weeks. It wasn't having to watch a reality show. It's watching a real reality show. Yeah. That night, the, they're there, they're lined up, and they start fighting. Uh, and today, uh, uh, how much time do we have? Well, we're going to about wrap this up. <laughs> well, we will just but you got a point. Last story. Last story on this. And, guys, I go over all the time. Lots of stories. <laughs> uh, that's what happens when you're 72. But uh, the uh, I watched – I just got to the uh, Contender Series uh, for this year. I've, I have UFC channel, but I just started watching it. I'm, I'm on week, uh, week three, I think it was the other night. Me and a friend of mine, one of my students, watched it. Holy mackerel. Week three, five fights incredible fights every one of them was a marquee fight not with names but in terms of style and what they were doing and uh four submissions but one a guy never stopped trying to get him and going forward and fighting like crazy the whole fight and even the opponents that defeated guys they were fighting for those contracts that night dana white gave five contracts never had happened before so anyway, we'll end it there. It's a great one to watch. Before we end it, we're going to call it. So we're going to have Andre Galvao. If this fight happens, Andre Galvao versus versus Gordon Ryan. Call it. Who's going to win and how they're going to take it? Name the submission and who you think's got it. If if Gordon Ryan, he's a younger athlete. He's more prone to this kind of fight. I think I would hand it to him. Um by a probably a heel hook, uh, uh, certainly something along those lines. But I hate to go against uh, Andre Galval. <laughs> he is one of the greats. I mean, they're both time. ADCC champions. They're both been at the pinnacle of the game for years. So my guess, I'm going to go with the king himself. I'm going to go with Gordon Ryan. I'm going to say he's definitely going to end it with a footlock of some sort. Yes. Uh Toehold. I'm going to call toehold right now. So I think he won't toehold. <laughs> <laughs> well, for Professor Papa John Gorman, I'm Craig Anthony. This has been All Things Jiu-Jitsu. Tune in next week as we got more great stuff coming at you guys. We thank you very much. Hit that subscribe button right here on YouTube and everywhere else you're listening to us. Subscribe, and we thank you very much. All Things Jiu-Jitsu. See you next time.